What is up, everybody? You guys awake this July almost afternoon? You guys awake out there? I'm looking. I don't hear much. Are you alive? Are we alive? I'm just making sure I'm preaching to a live audience. You never know. Sometimes it could just be a camera looking at me, but hey. You never know, so I thought I would check. My name is Darren. I am one of the pastors here at Connection Point Church, and my role here is I oversee all the digital media, and which also includes our communication department, and I also oversee our outreach. And and today we are in the towards the end of our series, our code. And our code is simply ten principles, ten codes that we as a staff, as a church believe in and live by and we've been going through them over the last handful of weeks and we we finish it up next week and next week don't worry I promise you the other two uh, worship experiences I didn't get to do this but this time I can tell you guys he's here so you know he'll be back next week all right because he's actually here so Chris is here and so you guys don't have to worry about it he'll be back it'll all be good and all that good stuff. But hey, if you're online, we love you guys. Give our online audience a hand. We love y'all. And we appreciate you guys because I know as much as anybody knows that the internet's a big, bad place and you can be doing anything in the world right now. But you're right there checking us out, there with us, worshiping with us. You are family and we love you guys and you are a part of what we do here. And man, if you ever have any questions, just drop it in the comments and we will be glad to help you out in any way we can, pray with you 24-7. Somebody will try to get back with you. Promise that is part of our code. We will do that for you. Anyway, on the code this week, it is ministry matters. Now, as part of that role that I have, uh, and we, I get with, the, with, with Chris and those guys, Pastor Chris and those guys, and we discuss terminology. Because if, if you guys ever been to the hospital and you're there and there's some people talking, you know, nurses and doctors and they're talking and they're using phrases and terminology that you have no idea what they're talking about. And you're questioning whether or not you're going to live or not because you really have no idea because it has 78 syllables. And you're like, what in the world is going on? They're like, oh, you have a sinus infection. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought I, I thought I had some incurable disease that I was never going to walk again from. Or, hey, maybe you've been to the, uh, the DMV or you've been up to, the, uh, to pay your taxes at the city court. And if you've ever been there, there's always those people there that act like you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing, right? You may have only been there one time in seven years, one time in 12 years, but you'll walk up and go, hey, where'd I go? You don't know where to go. Don't you know? What, what do you have? No. All right, you'll take that, go to the fourth floor, see Mary. She'll help you. She'll give you this form. She'll give you a form 14, 17, 18, 19, 7, and take that down to the third floor where you can see what's her name, whatever her name is, and she'll help you, send you up here, then I'll stamp it off and you're good to go, right? Well, it's a foreign thing for us, right? We don't like it. We, who likes being in a place that we, we're not comfortable with the words being used? And so we do, we, we concentrate on that. We try to weed through some of our terminology and make sure that if it's not just vital to the gospel, that we just don't use it. And we find another word that makes more sense for us to use. And ministry was one of those words for a minute. And I was more the one who was against the word because I knew, if you guys know Zach Harris, who was on the pre-show, he's in his 30s and he wasn't raised in church. And whenever me and him first met and we were talking, he asked me this question. He asked, he said, what is ministry? And because to him, it was a department of, of, the, of the government, like the Ministry of Defense. And so he really was clueless about it. But ministry is an important word. It's not a word we can just say, you know, like we call this the worship center instead of sanctuary. A lot of people call it a sanctuary. But 
ministry is an important word because ministry, so if we can't, if we, if we don't feel like we need to replace it, we at least need to explain it to you and define it for you so you know what it is. And ministry matters. And the, the tag to that is we serve others for Christ. And so to help you along, we're going to define the word ministry. Ministry is a Greek word, diakonia. Service, ministering, especially those of, who execute the commands of others. And the other side of that is serve. That is diakonia, which is literally a subservient of that word. It is to be a servant, attendant, a domestic, to serve, to wait upon, to minister to. So today we're going to look at this idea of serving and what does that look like. You could have stepped anywhere into the Bible and found a ton of verses and scriptures that back up and support the idea of serving. And as I prayed and was asking where to go, the Lord took me to an Old Testament story that most people probably wouldn't think would be the place to start. We're going to learn about a, a fellow and something that changed in his life. But to do that, I need to explain a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant. Who here knows what the Ark of the Covenant is? No shame if you don't. Because if you're like me, man, I'm in my 50s now, but the first few times I really knew about or heard about the Ark of the Covenant, you don't know where it was? Raiders of the Lost Ark, baby. Yeah, and I knew it was something weird and cool and mysterious and that, that Indiana Jones was looking for it. And I also found out this, if a Nazi opens it, it melts their face off which is pretty cool, but it's also scary. <laughs> and so what is the Ark of the Covenant? It's a pretty simple thing, actually. It's a box. God spoke to Moses and said, build me this box. About 1,200 years before Jesus was born, God said, look, I want this box. I want it to be about four foot long, about three foot tall, about three foot wide. Cover it in a plate of gold, Put a couple of gold angels on top. We call them cherubims. They're going to face one another. It's the mercy seat in there. We don't have time to go into all that right now. They put two, four golden rings on loops on each corner. And through those rings were, was to go a, uh, we used to impale those, those rings with a golden rods, two of them. And the way that God commanded them to carry the Ark of the Covenant was that the Levites, the Levites were, the tribe of Israel was broken up into 12 families, basically. And those 12 families, one of them were, was a man named Levi. And his generations were called the Levites. And the Levites were, was who God chose to be the priest. And it was through his lineage, the Levite priests were the ones and the only ones that were to take those rods and pass them through those rings and heft the Ark of the Covenant onto their shoulders and walk with it. And that was the way that God asked them to move the Ark of the Covenant. The thing to note is that in ancient history, the Jew, a Jewish man, was five foot three to five foot five, 125 to 130 pounds. Little bitty old dudes. And that, that's a lot of weight. It's a little over 550 pounds is what we think the Ark of the Covenant would have weighed. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant is also very, 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 very important. The first thing they put in were the Ten Commandments, the stones that God inscribed his law on. They dropped them in there. And then the next thing they put was the, the rod of Aaron, the rod that they used through their adventures through the wilderness. They placed that in there. And the last thing is, as the 
Hebrews were traveling out of Egypt and into the wilderness. Uh, God provided them food from heaven. They call it manna. And they had a golden pot, and they collected a lot of it and put it in this golden pot. And they also placed that in the Ark of the Covenant. And this was what they were to take with them everywhere they went. And as a nation of Israel, with Joshua and on to their next leaders, they would, as they traveled and go from nation to nation across the River Jordan, the Levites would go before them with the Ark of the Covenant. Everywhere they went. And all along that path, they came into battles. And every time they had the Ark of the Covenant with them, they won those battles. But there was an audience watching all this, kind of overseeing what was going on. And they were thinking about it, going, huh. And this was the Philistines. The Philistines were an ancient people. And I'm not going to lie, based off of history, they weren't the smartest, smartest folks out there, right? So if you are a descendant of a Philistine, I'm sorry. I apologize right now. Because your folks, your great, 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 folks were some stupid folks. You're about to find out how stupid they, they looked out there and said, man, Israel's, Israelites, man, they're killing everybody. They're winning every war. What is it about them? And one of them said, I know. Well, what is it? It's the box. They said, the box? Man, look, everywhere they go, rivers open up. They win wars. Miracles happen. It's the box. And they're like, well, we got to get that box. I mean, if we get that box... We'll start winning. They'll turn the tide to our side. They said, that's a great idea. So they got into a war with the Israelites and tried to steal the ark from them. Didn't work a couple times. But unfortunately for the Israelites, they had some disobedient leadership later on. And who, and you know as well as I do, if God doesn't make anything happen necessarily. But in our disobedience, He can allow things to happen. And in this case, he allowed the Philistines to finally get their wish. They grabbed the box, and they hightailed it back home. So they had the box. Woo! Party, party, party. They go, and they take it into their temple, and they set it up in there. And they're like, yes! We have the box, and we have our God, Dagon, half man, half fish. Massive statue doing, and they were so excited because they had the whole world in their hands. And they were so cool and happy. And they said, man, we can rest easy tonight because we had the box. And Dagon's overseeing it. Who can beat us now? Go home, go to bed, wake up the next day. Dagon's laying on the ground. What? Did you guys feel an earthquake last night? A little tremor? Did I miss something? No? Let's pick it back up. So they pick it back up. Go back, go to sleep. That was odd. No big deal. Wake up the next day. There's Dagon laying on the ground again. What is that? Set that booger back up one more time. This time his head gets removed, his feet, his hands. He's pretty much been decimated. And the the Philistines are like, huh, what is up with this? And the one guy came over and said, you know, I know what it is. It's the box. They said, you know, you might be right. It could be that box. They said, no, come on now. Look, we watched them guys do all these great things, and it was with this box. We're going to hold on to it for a little while longer. Bad move. Because then they were struck, the people of Philistine were struck by plague 
of a few different kinds. First and foremost, they had an epidemic of hemorrhoids. Yep. And in the days before Preparation H, that was a big deal. It was painful and it was ugly, and there were thousands of them walking around with some ugliness. <laughs> Poor Philistines. But they held on to that box. They said, we're going to hold on to it a little while longer. Then the rats started infiltrating their cities and their towns. And next thing you know, they had different plagues and viruses and, and, and the bubonic plague. And they said, you know, we need to move this box. Let's take it somewhere else. Maybe he just don't like living here. So they picked it up and they hauled it a little ways down the road and put it in another place. And said, it'll be okay here because we still got the box. Nope, didn't help. Still had plagues, still had epidemics, still had hemorrhoids. <laughs> Moved it one more time and said, this is going to be it right here. This is the safe place. We still got it. We're going to win these wars. Nope. Hemorrhoids still abound. So by this point, the Philistines had figured out that the Ark of the Covenant was a real pain in the tail and that they didn't really need to have it anymore. So they said, you know, it's time for the box to go. I got a really good idea. That guy who came over and said we should steal the box came back and said, let's do this. Let's take the box, put it on a cart, get a couple cows, and let them haul that thing toward Jerusalem. Sound good? Tell you what, we'll make sure they're, they're milking cows and they have calves back here. And if it's really God wanting that thing to leave, because I'm not sure, I still think we need to hold on to that thing. But if they don't return, because that'd be the natural work, the natural thing that a, that a pregnant or that a milking cow would do is return to his calves, then that must be God wants that thing out of here. So they pop them things on the rear end and say, get and there goes the Ark of the Covenant. And it didn't come back. So the box was now gone from the hands of the Philistines. And it meandered down the highway toward Jerusalem, and it settled in a little field. There's a whole lot to this story we can't get into. You guys remember that scene from, from Raiders of the Lost Ark where the Nazis opened it up and fried their faces off? Yeah? Well, guess what happened here? I think Steven Spielberg was influenced by this story. Because a part of the story most people don't know is, is that when it settled in that field, a group of Israelites found it. And they got the whole town and the whole community and said, hey, let's go look at this thing. Woo, look at that. The Ark of the Covenant's here. Presence of God. Let's look in it. You want to look in it? Let's look in it. Fried their faces off. <laughs> it did. It killed all of them. It killed them all. Don't have time to get into that, but that's a crazy story. And it trips me out every time I think about it. So what's this all about? So they took the house, that, the Ark of the Covenant, and said, man, what can we do with this thing? We don't know what to do. We got an idea. There's a Levi priest who lives out here. His name is Abinadab. We'll take it to him. Surely, until we figure it out, because right now there's a lot of unrest in Israel, probably best that we just take it to somebody who's a, who's a trained professional. They took it over to his house. And there it stayed in the house of Abinadab, 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 for 20 years. For 20 years, the presence of God stayed in this man's house. Around this time is when David supplanted Saul as king of Israel. Saul 
died and David took his spot. David had a really good idea. It was a really good idea to bring the presence of the Lord back to the house of God and to the tabernacle. That's an ambitious and a great thing to do. Great idea. Now, David, in general, was kind of smart. You know, he wasn't him. He's King David, man after God's own heart. But the dude did something really, 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 really stupid. He went to get the ark from the house of Abinadab, and he did exactly what the Philistines did. Except he did it better. He got a new cart, not one of them old gnarly, nasty Philistine carts. And he built this fresh, fresh new cart. And they didn't use some old cow, they used some ox. And they were going to place the Ark of the Covenant on there, and he brought a bunch of partiers with him, and they were going to celebrate and dance all the way to Jerusalem, celebrating that they had the box. All looked good. Everybody's dancing, having a good old time. The procession is going, it's a party, bringing home the box. About that moment, a hole in the road, the, arc of the, uh, the oxen stumbles, the cart tilts, and a man named Uzzah puts his hand up, boom, drops dead from touching the Ark of the Covenant. This freaks David out. He didn't know what to do. He was angry. He was upset. He was sad. He didn't know. He was confused. Lord, what, what are we doing? I'm trying to bring your presence back to the people. And that's where we pick up. 2 Samuel 6, 10 through 11. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. That's an interesting thing that it did there. For three months, it was in his house, Obed-Edom, a Gittite. A Gittite simply means he was from a community called Gath. Uh, there's a couple Gaths in ancient history in that region. It could be any of, he could be from either, either one. It changes some things, but we're not going to get into all that. But for us right now, he is from Gath. Now, it just, the Ark of the Covenant had just left a Levite's house, a priest's house, a ordained minister of God born to be and to handle the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. In 20 years, we find out nothing about what happened in that house. Nothing. The only thing we know that happened from the Ark's presence in that house was that the son died. Uzzah was the son of the priest of Abinadab. He died. But Obed-Edom's house, he was blessed. And not just him, his entire household. For us to go any farther, you must understand about the ark and what the ark is and what it represents. First point is, as I said it many times, the ark is representative of the presence of God. In the New Testament, we simply call that the Holy Spirit. So the Ark of the Covenant is the physical, the physicalness of the Holy Spirit in a physical form that could only be in one place at one time. This is pre-Jesus. And the Ark of the Covenant is the Holy Spirit. So what happened 
in Obed-Edom's house. The Holy Spirit was in his house. But the Holy Spirit was also in the house of Abinadab. So what does that tell me? It tells me that we could all be vessels and contain the Holy Spirit, but one household, nothing going on. Not a thing. And there's a reason. While in another house, there's something happening. God's doing things. He's blessing them. Is that just arbitrary? There's a reason why. Because if you, there had to be a catalyst of something to happen. The Holy Spirit should do something whenever it enters us. If you are born again, blood-bought, a Christian, then you are the temple of the, of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The Holy Spirit changes you. It changes you. It turns something in your life. It rearranges your, your literally your spiritual DNA. You become something new. We see two pictures. One where only a curse came from it. And another where, where blessings came. We're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to look. Because David noticed this. David noticed that. Obed-Edom had the favor of the Lord on him. And he realized that the only reason God was angry was because he did something stupid. He said, all right, I know the right way to do it. So this time he did it exactly the way that Moses had taught them and that God had showed Moses. They brought in a team of Levitical priests. They brought the rods and they put them through the loops, put it on their shoulders, and began to walk their way back to Jerusalem, to the tabernacle. And he wanted to do this thing right. David said, we're going to do this right this time. So he invited all that would come, all the priests, all the people, and he began to assign amongst them roles and jobs. We're going to read in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 15, 19, 21, that he assigned some the singers Heman, Asaph, Ethan, I'm not going to read all these, but he named off tons of people. There's Zechariah and Isaiah and Jehel and Uni and Eli, and he goes on and on. And all of a sudden we see Obed-Edom. There's our dude, Obed. And he's doing what? He's playing the liar. And not a liar, but a guitar. <laughs> they called him liars. So here is Obed-Edom. The Spirit of the Lord is in his house. And what do you know? He's going to serve in any way, capacity that he can. He says, hey, I'll do whatever you want. What do you need me to do, David? He said, can you play guitar? He said, I don't know. We'll figure it out. Grabs a guitar. He starts. He gets out in front of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. He's playing on the way in, man. He's playing whatever little ditty he knows how to play. He's playing along. Everybody's dancing. They're bringing in the, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And now the Ark of the Covenant is now in Jerusalem. And David said, you know, I need to choose amongst these guys some people willing to minister in the tabernacle, in the presence of the, temple, of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. We see that, 1 Chronicles 16, 4 through 5. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the Ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. 
names off Asaph and the chief, blah, blah, goes on. And all of a sudden, there we get to Obed-Edom. Oh, Obed, so I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever you need me to do, David. God, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I'll serve in that temple. I'll serve in that tabernacle. I'll be there. Whatever you need. We see Obed-Edom. And this goes on and on and on. There's like seven of these lists. And every time you turn around, it's Obed-Edom. He's playing the guitar. He's dancing. He's singing. He's guarding. He's doing all these things. And one of the highest honors you could have is to be a gatekeeper. The, uh, the, old, the old tabernacle had four basic entrances. Uh, one from the outside, the east gate. And as you got farther and farther inside or deeper into the tabernacle, it had a series of doors or gates. And men were selected to guard those. And usually not just men, but their lineage, the, 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 a father and his sons and then their sons, right? And to get to be there was an honor. Now, most of these men had a generation or two. But we learned something about Obed-Edom in 1 Chronicles 26, 4 through 6. As the division of the gatekeepers were announced, we get down a bit and it says, And Obed-Edom had sons. Shemaiah, the firstborn, Jehozabad, the second, Joah, the third, Sashar, the fourth, Nathaniel, the fifth, Amiel, the sixth, Issachar, the seventh, Peulathai, the eighth, for God blessed him. Also to his son Shemaiah were sons born who were rulers in their father's houses, for they were men of great ability. Later on, it talks about 62 descendants of, of Obed-Edom served in the temple or the tabernacle of God. Something had changed inside of Obed-Edom. The Holy Spirit was in him and he knew only to do one thing and one thing only. Whatever you need, Lord. Whatever you need, Father. Whatever you need, leader, David, I will do it. Pick me. Choose me. I'll do it. Here's an interesting thing about good old obed Y'all know what his name means? Translated into servant. So now we're going to jump into the New Testament. See how this applies to us. You can go anywhere in the New Testament. There's tons of things. It's a theme throughout the New Testament. Serving. But there was this one spot that I couldn't get out of my spirit, out of my heart, and I wanted to bring it out. I didn't know how to bring it out. And so I left it alone and came back to it and left it alone, and here it is. John 13, 4 through 8. Not your atypical place to go for a servant message. Serving message. John 13, 4 through 8. He, being Jesus, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, or his followers' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, said, what I am doing, this is important, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter looked at him and said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him back, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Picture this. Foot washing was a very common thing in ancient culture, specifically that part of the world. If you don't know this, and history tells us, there was not a whole lot of water in this part of the world. 
So the Jews and other people from that region didn't bathe a lot, okay? But what they did do is they washed certain parts of their body pretty regularly, pretty much every day, anytime they entered a house. It was their feet, it was their hands, and it was their head face. And that was it. They usually, we would take care of our own hands and face. That's usually how that went. For a married man, when a husband came home from his travels, his wife would be the one who washed his feet. For guests or for anywhere else, it would be a slave or a servant would be the one washing their feet. So that's why Peter reacted the way he did. He's like, no way, man. Jesus, you are my, I'm, he's trying to wrap his brain around the idea, this might just be my Messiah. But at the very least, you're my rabbi, you're my teacher, you're my master. You cannot do this. It's beneath you. Jesus said, no. Now, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you won't have any part of me. So Jesus stood up, and he began to unclothe himself. He bared all that he was, and then wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to squat down and wash all of their feet. And Jesus was trying to teach us and Peter a very valuable lesson, and a very valuable lesson. Something that Peter at this point couldn't understand. He disagreed. But later on in second, or in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is your, yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That phrase or those words emptied himself is a Greek term, a Greek word, a single Greek word called kenosis. In its literal sense, it means he made himself nothing. Here's Jesus talking to Peter. And what did he do? He had to disrobe himself. He physically had to unveil right there in front of everybody. Right here in a very personal, one-on-one -on -one moment, in a very small place, encapsulated this entire truth that Jesus himself, as God himself, in order to save you and me, did the exact same thing on a cosmic, spiritual level. He pulled off his glory, his outer glow. He became nothing naked before his creation. And he lowered himself, stooped himself down to our level. He's God, savior, creator, sustainer of everything. And he removed all of that from himself so that he could be with you and me, that he could save us. He pulled it all away and he washed our feet. In this case, he washed our feet from the cross. He served us. But just like Mark 10, 45 says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Big takeaway. A renewed heart is a servant's heart. I go back to my my story quite a bit. It's my story. So, Not going into all the details. I can remember that day, that night, 
when the Lord came into my heart, when he broke my heart, changed who I was, changed the direction of my life. I was broken, laying on the ground, crying like a baby, but I had enough sense to ask one question. I looked up at God and said, what now? God simply had a single word for me. That's all he had. Felt it all through my whole being. Serve. Okay. He knew the arrogant turd that I could be. He knew the hardest thing in the world for me to do was submit myself lower than other people. But I was different. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit resided now in me, this temple. And I did exactly what he asked me to do. I went to the church I was, I was, I was going to, and I asked them, I said, what can I do? He said, uh, can you change out toilets? I said, yep, I can change out toilets. So I began to change all the guts in the toilets. Can you do this? Can you do that? I picked up trash. I cleaned up the, the, the baby pens and all those things. I did everything I could. I asked, what can I do? How can I help you? How can I help? Lord, what can I do? Over and over again. For years this went on. You say, who cares about cleaning toilets? What kind of service is that? Well, I promise you, man, if somebody who's not saved and they walk into this place and that toilet overflows and backs up on them, they're going to say, these, plates, these people are nasty and they don't care what you have to say. You hear me? And the cool thing about that whole story with Obed-Edom is now when I look at my story, you remember it wasn't just about Obed. It was also about his generations coming out behind him. See, this is the thing that blesses my heart more than anything. I care less what the Lord, you know, if he uses me another day. But here's what I know. I know that my children serve in the house of, the God, of, the house of God. They serve in the house of the Lord. All of them are called to labor and to serve the body of Christ. And they all do it willingly in little ways, in big ways. I understand how Obed-Edom felt. It changed my life. And it can change your life. And if you are born again in this place and you aren't actively serving right now, this is not some plea for you to start changing out baby's diapers back in the nursery. We're going to put a, a uh, website on the screen so you can, so you can go to your serve. I don't care if you know what you want to do or not. Just put it, you can leave it blank. Just fill it out. And somebody will get you plugged into doing something. Because serving isn't just to do a job. If you're born again, if you call yourself a child of God, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Serving isn't a job. It's not just filling a spot. It's who you are. It's in your DNA. Just like your Savior, just like Jesus came and unveiled himself and ripped away all that he is to serve us when he didn't have to. You guys can stand with me.